cold since last night and tonight. We're sitting in time of a shift, and it's been a beautiful fall here up until now. Uh, and I understand, contrary to what we usually get right now in Manitoba, is lovely, or is it kind of slippery? It's down? beautiful yesterday. Green grass. Okay. Just like I took this yesterday. So, <laughs> so please, please join me in welcoming Ron Stewart. Thank you very much. It's very much a pleasure to be here, finally. I've never been to Lethbridge before, and uh, you have a beautiful city here and a beautiful campus, a beautiful spot. So today I'll talk about this particular topic, uh, drought-heavy precipitation and climate, and I'll talk about it from uh, the perspective of an atmospheric physicist who's actually, my main research actually, is understanding how precipitation forms. That's my main research area. So by looking at drought, it's sort of an anti-research for me and trying to understand why you don't have precipitation. So it's uh, an interesting experience for me. And this, has, this, is, this research I'll be presenting today is a small aspect of a research initiative on drought we've been having over the last five years, which is coming to an end, the Drought Research Initiative, DRI for short, as in DRY for understanding drought. So we thought we were quite clever with the acronym, Canada DRY. Uh, so as what I'll talk to today about is a few of the atmospheric mainly related issues that we found, as well as a few other things. So first of all, without looking at this in detail, all of you know that every year Dave Phillips and Environment Canada sort of gives rise to the worst disasters that Canada has had over the past year. And every 10 years, he does it for the last decade. And here, for example, are the decades of the 2000s. You don't have to memorize that or anything like that. But you can see that almost all areas of the country experienced some devastation over the last 10 years. And the Canadian prairies are certainly not immune to that as well. So you have periods of drought, heavy precipitation, and all of their many different consequences. So looking at extremes of drought and precipitation is a really a critical issue for Canada. And uh, this particular year here, of course, is a very good example of that. Uh, this cartoon, by the way, is from the, the Winnipeg Free Press a couple of months ago as our farmers are trying to harvest the crop, which is a rather difficult task. So this particular year, as you know, started off unbelievably dry. So these farmers in Manitoba didn't want to plant their crops because the ground was so dry. But then Mother Nature turned on the taps and she refused to stop it. So it's been an extraordinary year this year as well. So the prairies are an area very prone uh, to extremes, of these two shades of Mother Nature. And of course, these issues are actually of global concern. If you go to the World Meteorological Organization in Geneva, you talk to the Secretary General who's in charge, what questions are he asked more than any other question? Will we have more hurricanes? Will we have more droughts? Extremes is the common element, that nothing else comes anywhere close to the kinds of issues the society is concerned about today and tomorrow, basically regardless of where you are in the world. So it's a huge issue. So I'm not going to talk about all those big motivations, basically. I'll talk about a small subset of that. And so my objectives are just to summarize just a few of the connections between drought, heavy precipitation, and climate. And first of all, I'll try to introduce the concept that extremes are actually an inherent aspect of the climate system. They're not just along for the ride. Uh, just a few features of drought. I'm talking to an audience in Lethbridge about drought. I suspect you can all 
teach me a lot about drought as well. And I then wanted to illustrate just some of the connections between drought and heavy precipitation. We would do a little bit of crystal ball gazing for the future. And furthermore, I'll tend to focus uh, a lot of the research on this drought which uh, affected the prairies to a certain extent over this particular time period. When we started the network, we wanted to look at all extremes over all parts of the country, over all time frames. And given the amount of funding, we chose drought over the prairies for one drought. So it's a way of making progress as opposed to trying to understand everything to a small degree. Sometimes it's actually another scientific approach just to look at one in detail. And then from that vantage point of you know, strength of understanding, you can extrapolate elsewhere. Starting from the first concept, uh, here's a diagram that you've all seen in many different ways, one way or the other. All it is is an example. Here's a 10-year average, but you can have any average you want of precipitation with the purple ones being lots of precipitation and yellow otherwise. So this is a climatology of precipitation. And obviously it shows you what you already know. The heaviest precipitation is in the, the tropical regions. And then somewhat monotonically it moves lower towards the poles. So that's what climate is. So basically looking at these relatively smooth distributions. But on the other hand, if you look at any year, doesn't matter what year you choose, I just chose 2002 somewhat randomly, you get a different picture. And this is precipitation anomaly, so it's a departure of the precipitation this particular year from the longer term average. And blue represents way above normal, and red represents way below normal, and just forget Antarctica. There's no data there, so who knows. Uh, so basically the point I want to make is, look at all the red on that diagram, and this is like just one year. So obviously Western Canada and Western United States, Mexico were under very severe drought. Much of Australia is as well, other parts. So there's blobs of red, there's blobs of blue. And so basically when you look at your long-term average, you're very often you're averaging extremes, right? So there's a lot of extremes there, but when you average it over 10 years, well, those red, red areas anomalously low, a couple of years later anomalously high, you take a long-term average, you get a nice smooth distribution. So my point is basically you can't understand the climate without understanding the basis for that and the extremes are an inherent aspect of that. You're not going to understand the climate without understanding the extremes. But not just a tail of a distribution just sitting over there somewhere. They're an inherent aspect of the climate system. And as we understand extremes better, we'll understand the climate better. Now one particular area of the, the world is quite prone to extremes. And of course, we know some of the reasons for that. Here we're looking, for example, at droughts. So if you want to have a region you don't concern about drought, the first thing is you put it next to a large water body, which the Canadian prairies managed not to do. We're a long way from a large water body. So moisture coming to us has to come largely from the Pacific Ocean or from the Gulf of Mexico. On occasion, it comes from the Arctic Ocean, and sometimes it comes from Hudson Bay. And just very, very occasionally it comes up here. But in general, those are the two big moisture sources right in there. So we're a long way away from major moisture sources. And so it should be a region quite prone to drought. Now to me, this is a very, very important aspect of the prairie climate system, this diagram here. Because this actually sort of quantifies some of those concepts I just mentioned. What we're looking at here is actually a plot of height and the atmosphere. This is at the surface. 
700 millibars is 3 kilometers above the surface, 500 is 5 kilometers above the surface. So this is actually height here. And this is water vapor flux. And this is going into the prairies. Very simply, anything on, on the negative side means water vapor from somewhere outside is flowing into the, the prairie climate system. And anything on this side means water vapor is leaving the prairie climate system. We just have to look at this side in here. So this tells us where the water is coming from outside the prairies in terms of water vapor. And basically the point is basically the maximum height, or the, the height at which most of the water vapor is coming from those external factors into our region is 700 millibars, or three kilometers above the surface. That's a long way above the surface. In fact, there's no other region of Canada where the water vapor coming into the region is as high. But of course, this makes sense, as we just saw. You have the Rocky Mountains. Well, obviously, the moisture coming into our region has to come in high. It's got to be above the mountains. And furthermore, coming from the Gulf of Mexico, the moisture tends to very gently slide upwards. And so by the time it reaches us, it tends to be high. So we very often tend to get moisture, water vapor, which can lead to clouds quite high above the surface. So this is interesting. Then we can actually have water vapor producing lots of clouds, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, but it's basically the ceiling of this building here. Yes, it's way up there, but then you've got to get that precip down to the ground. And there are no lakes around here. So basically what you end up doing, you're producing clouds of precipitation up here, but it actually may not reach down to the ground. It'll actually evaporate or sublimate. It actually won't reach down to the ground. So we have an awful lot of mid-level clouds in this particular region which are incapable of producing precip on the ground. So it's an area very prone to drought as a consequence of that. Now it's interestingly, the same diagram, on occasion we can actually, for example, in the summer have that Gulf of Mexico moisture coming in not at a slant, but actually come in quite horizontal. And in those situations, we can actually have a lot of moisture at the low levels as well, particularly from the Gulf of Mexico. And then you have a huge region of the atmosphere here moisture coming in over a very deep region, you can produce an awful lot of precipitation. So this diagram to me actually sort of sets up a situation where we can actually flip and flop between extremes, largely due to our geography here. And as you know better than I, this is a region very prone, prone to drought. Uh, some of you probably know what these two indices are, uh, PDSI and SPI. I won't actually go into what their definitions are, but basically both of them are a measure of moisture. So these are basically averaging. This is a measure of drought, the Palmer Drought Severity Index. This is the Standard Precipitation Index. And this is averaged over the summer, over a year, over two years, and over five years. And any time you have a line above zero, that means it's wet. And any time it's below zero, it tends to be dry. And these are just averaging different times or it's a different index, which is sort of giving the same thing. So as you know yourself, the bottom line is it's either dry here or wet here, right? There's lots of those different periods here. And you can argue about the severity of these. And these indices in this particular diagram are averaged over the agricultural area of the prairies, which is a large area. It doesn't mean if it's really uh, dry, it doesn't mean it's dry over the whole prairies, as you'll see. But averaged over the prairies, it may be dry. So we're an area very prone uh, to droughts and heavy precipitation. And this other diagram here is what I told you about as our focus. We've done a lot of work on that. 
Well, if you want to look at droughts in detail, what do you want to look at? Well, first of all, you want to have as much data as you possibly can in that drought. The 3030s are over here. There were no satellite records in 1930s. There were no radars in the 1930s. There were no balloon launches in the 1930s. There was no satellite. There was no soil moisture. So if you want to look at something in great detail, you have to choose a recent drought because the amount of data we have on that is orders of magnitude more than any other drought we've had. So our strategy then was try to look at one in detail. We found that even a difficult task. But if you can understand one or even develop a way of understanding how to look at one, then you can adapt that to the other ones as well. So this drought we had in the just around 2000, you can see that others may have been worse, but it was a very significant drought by any measure, as you know yourselves here. So this is a diagram that I use in my weather and climate course, which I missed giving the lecture this morning. I have to make up for that uh, on Friday. So this is a conceptual picture that is used for teaching weather and climate across North America. And this is the classic example of what a drought is. So basically, you have a persistent high-pressure ridge over western North America. When you have a high pressure, you have descending air. Descending air means you've got, you have no clouds. It sort of stays there. You're going to get a lot of hot conditions. And there's very little change in pressure, so it's going to be very calm. So basically, it's hot and dry, and just what you'd expect. And that's what's taught in the textbook. And they add, we're actually making a Canadian edition of this, so next year we'll actually be taking, teaching a Canadian edition, because this was actually centered in the U.S., by the way, but regardless. So I just wanted to walk through this last drought and just look at a few elements of that drought, and just remembering what our conceptual picture of drought actually is. Of course, this conceptual picture is based on a lot of good science, but are there other ways that uh, Mother Nature can conspire to produce a lack of precipitation? Well, for one thing we can look at are large-scale circulation patterns. And I just chose three just so it fits on a piece of paper. Uh, and these particular plots, whenever it's red, it means it's a high-pressure system, and blue tends to be a low-pressure system. And these are all large-scale patterns during the drought, and I could have done all sorts of them. The first thing you should just notice, which is my only point is, the large-scale circulations of highs and lows vary dramatically during the drought. So the large-scale pattern wasn't always that simple conceptual high-pressure ridge. This, this is a high-pressure here, so this would be the closest analogy to that. And here's something exactly opposite, for example. But there was still a drought situation going on. So the first thing is the large-scale patterns may vary more than what one would expect. You just experienced it. And the other interesting thing about is one normally thinks about a drought as hot. Of course, it doesn't mean it can't be hot, but was this last drought hot? These are examples. Normally, people think about the summers of 2000 to 2002 sort of being the core of the drought. So that high pressure, you think it'd be most manifest to produce hot summers. Well, here's an example of precipitation. Around Edmonton, when you average over those summers, we're basically only half of the precipitation is normal. Well, that's a drought by any measure. Even a little old Etheridge down here had, uh, what, a huge amount, 30% reduction in precipitation. But look at the temperatures. Well, they're a little bit less than normal, but not much. So it wasn't actually a hot drought either. And we can actually look at that in a little bit more detail. This is an example for, exa for the, each year of the drought. 
each year the drought. We've actually plotted at Edmonton. We've done it all other locations. How the precipitation anomaly compared with the temperature anomaly. So basically, this is an Edmonton. And this is the precipitation anomaly at Edmonton. In other words, this is how much the precipitation at Edmonton was of each of these years compared to normal. And at the same time, we plot at the same time how the temperature in Edmonton varied compared to normal as well. So basically, taking a year like this green one in here, that's 2001. Well, basically, it's saying the precipitation is below normal and the temperature is above normal. Well, that's what you'd expect, right? Hot, dry dirt. But interestingly enough, you look at a plot like this, there's 2003. Well, the precipitation is way below normal. Unfortunately, the temperature is also way below normal as well. In fact, so basically you can have, just from this measure here, not all droughts then are hot droughts looked at from another perspective. And we can look at that in a bit more detail as well. I don't know why, but we call these quilt plots. I have no idea why. I'm giving them away as Christmas presents, by the way. So this is looking at the temperature anomalies over the prairies as a function of month. It's the same plot. They're very simple plots, but it's kind of fun. So this is each year of the drought, and this is each month of the year. And what we're looking at is temperature anomalies. So basically, if it's really red, it says that month is way above normal, up to 8 degrees Celsius warmer than normal. If it's blue, it's way below normal. And so, for example, let's choose this block in here. That means that's uh, February of 1999 is that color, which means it's about three or four degrees Celsius above normal. Okay, that's how you look at these. So basically, yes, it was a hot drought. There were periods of that drought way above normal. Our Decembers were upwards of eight degrees Celsius below normal. It was a very hot drought. Instead of minus 40 in Winnipeg, we made minus 32. I mean, it was a hot drought. For Winnipeg, this is a very positive plot, I assure you. So let's... My wife uh, moved to Winnipeg. She called it Winnipeg in the wintertime. In the, win in the summertime, it's Windypeg. So, you know, see, I don't think she's actually used the word Winnipeg once since she's moved there two years ago. But anyways, that's, could you take that off my recording, please? I don't want my wife to see this. So. Uh, and interestingly, in January of 2001, we had an anomaly of eight. And interestingly, you can see big blue patches. Here we are. In March, April, May of 2002, look at those extreme departures. And here's the agricultural year right in here. And basically, you'll see that they're just oscillating around zero. So by any measure you see here, it wasn't a hot drought. Okay? And sometimes it was actually prone to cold, even during uh, the growing season. And of course, droughts don't have clouds either. Somebody forgot to tell Mother Nature. So this is the percentage of cloud anomalies over the agricultural year versus uh, years. This is all based on satellite imagery. And this little area here indicates when the drought happened. So uh, it's very hard to see a great de decrease in the cloud amount during the drought. But obviously these clouds must be somewhat different because they were incapable of producing precipitation. So it wasn't a, a cloud-free drought as well. And interestingly enough, if you say it should be a large high pressure system, that means there should be very little gradients in pressure, which means you shouldn't have much to drive the wind. So we just did a little fun thing asking how, how many times the periods of calm actually change. So this is actually looking at 
how you, whether the periods of number of incidents of calm actually change or not. And if it's red, that means you even had fewer days of calm than what you're used to. And of course, there's Lethbridge actually. So this is actually bad news for Lethbridge, but it said in the drought you actually had fewer calm days than you normally do. I actually wasn't sure that it wasn't zero to start with, but whatever, it's actually you have slightly less days of calm than what you thought in Lethbridge as well. So in fact, there were fewer days that were calm. So it's actually in that regard a windy drought, and we've looked at it from other perspectives. It was actually above normal winds at the surface as well. So that's very interesting. We have this conceptual picture which is based on really good foundation, but maybe sometimes Mother Nature can find other ways of producing a lack of precipitation. And this is an exact a measure, for example, for one year during the drought of how much precipitation occurred relative to normal. And whenever it read, that basically says that's the record dry. That's the least amount of precipitation that station has recorded in recorded history. And here we are, Lethbridge is actually in red for that agricultural year, which is September 1st of 2000 to September 21st, 2001. And if you look at the lowest tenth of Santal and Brown, it's a huge area. That's an enormous area, right? Including the record-breaking, which included uh, Lethbridge. But for me, this isn't surprising, actually, uh, because if you're trying to understand growth, it's a very complex phenomenon. Uh, basically, fundamentally, there are many factors governing how water vapor comes into the system. And I remember that vertical plot was talking about this. I mean, we see we have clouds. They seem to be incapable of producing precipitation. Well, the simplest way to produce a drought is to have no clouds whatsoever. And obviously that happens. But in this particular drought, there must be other things happening. Basically, if the largest raindrop evaporates one millimeter above the surface, it's a drought, right? So you can actually have precipitation aloft. It just doesn't reach the ground. That's a drought. Okay. And we'll see more about that a bit later on. So let's look at some other years. Here's 2002, and again, a huge area of 10 percentile or red. It's an enormous area. So uh, maybe it's not as bad as the dirty 30s, but this was uh, serious by any measure you'd want to imagine. But it's interesting. Let's look at Edmonton here, for example. Edmonton in 2002 experienced its lowest precipitation on record. And I was just curious, okay, that's the lowest on record. It's kind of curious, what does it actually look like in terms of precipitation occurring at Edmonton? And all we did was basically look at the daily precipitation amounts at Edmonton. Very simple, and just add them all up. So the top diagram here shows the climatology of precipitation at Edmonton. And this is basically the percentage of the total precipitation versus the precipitation for the day. And so you have a small little very amounts of 5 or 10 millimeters all the way up to 100 millimeters. Okay? So just number of amounts of precipitation, number of days it happens over a 30 or 50 year period. What's the distribution look like? So basically what it is, basically you have a lot of days where you ha don't have very much precipitation. And then you fall off and you have a few days where you have a lot. Well, that sort of makes sense, and that's the climatology for Edmonton. Now, in our drought, and don't forget, this sets an all-time record for drought in Edmonton. So this is what it looked like. So basically, it's the same plot, and you still have a lot of episodes producing relatively little precipitation. Look at that. So basically, it was a drought of large precipitation events. In fact, you look at the number of days of precipitation in Edmonton, it was actually more than normal during the drought but they were all small events. 
so very interesting. So again, it's Mother Nature. It's not, it's lots of clouds. It can produce precipitation. But this year, well, big stuff's off. And this broke an all-time record of the least amount of precipitation in Alberta history. Okay. And the interesting thing is there's a lot of techniques for trying to assess drought by looking at the number of precipitation-free days. Okay, how many days of that it is? I'll define that as a drought. Well, it won't work here. Because the number of days of precip is actually more than normal, but yet it produced a record amount of precipitation or lack thereof. Okay. Doesn't mean all droughts are bad, but this one is. And one contribution to that is this statistic here. It's basically you're looking at Edmonton, and the precipitation reduction was basically half. It's only half normal. How many hours of precipitation recorded at Edmonton in the summer? It's 120. The number of days with Virga is the same. And Virga is the phenomenon I'm trying to show you here. Basically, you can have these clouds aloft. See the precipitation coming down? See, none of it gets down to the ground. And this is what I was saying before. The moisture's coming in high. The clouds are doing their thing. Everything is honky-dory. Let's put you guys on the ground. But it's a very deep region of dry air. And water falling into that won't survive doesn't quite reach the ground, so you call it Virga. Very common in left reach. It must be a very common phenomenon. So there's your precept. If these guys had just got down to the ground, you wouldn't have had your 49% reduction. And I can assure you, models have an unbelievably difficult time with that problem. They can produce precipitation a lot, but they have a terrible tendency of getting it all the way down to the ground. This is a very fine issue. That cloud base may be a couple of kilometers above the surface. It's got, it's got its evaporate it all before it gets down to the ground. And for a drought, if you actually start evaporating it onto ground, that means the ground gets wet, and then it can evaporate more, as I'll show you. It's a very difficult issue. Simulating drought is a very uh, difficult problem when you have these situations. And just as a little aside, is that these are radar images. This, we've looked at a lot of these. There's radars across the prairies. We've looked at a lot of that to try to infer not only how much precipitation was occurring, but was it occurring as a, a torrent, like a, a, out of a thunderstorm, or was it more gradual, a sulfur situation? And these are just examples. I could have shown any other ones about the answer is, of course, each one could occur. Sometimes precipitation is a, a long-term event, and DBZ is a measure of radar reflectivity. If it's a low value, that means the precipitation rate is low, and if it's a high value, it's very high. And it's a bit hard to see, I apologize, but what it's saying is a very high precipitation amount and the time scale is much more compressed. You get a whole deluge coming off, you get a lot of uh, flooding at the surface as opposed to a soaker. So some of those precipitation events could be of either character with very important hydrologic consequences as well. Another very interesting thing about the drought, because it is a windy drought, there's actually a lot of dust storms. And these are examples in Saskatchewan. In fact, that they had 32 major dust storms. And this study was initially motivated by the fact of a number of traffic accidents with deaths because the visibility was basically zero. But it's turning out, like most things, including drought, they're not along for the ride. In fact, it's becoming clear that, no pun intended, that dust is an inherent aspect of understanding drought. There's been some recent work done in the States that unless you can understand the dust which accompanies a drought, then you can't understand the drought. 
because you suspend all these particles in the atmosphere, uh, solar radiation coming down won't come down to the surface. It'll be reflected back to outer space by bouncing off the dust particles. And that means below the dust, it's cold, or cooler than you would expect if there was no dust. Okay, so dust is up there, it's cooler. Now, outside the drought area, there's no dust. So the solar radiation comes down. So it's hotter outside the drought area than inside. And cold air sinks. So it's actually this, the, the drought area would start to sink because of that consequence. And the sinking actually does, no, does not promote clouds exactly the opposite. So that sinking motion initiated by the dust actually perpetuates the drought. And the other thing that dust does, if you know that all cloud droplets in the atmosphere has to form around some foreign substance like dust. It has to. There's no other way of doing it. When you produce a multitude of dust particles, that means you're going to produce a multitude of small cloud droplets as opposed to a few big ones. Each of those small ones has a minuscule chance of getting big enough to fall to the ground. So it also acts to inhibit the production of the drought as well. So again, like most things, it's not along for the ride. It's an inherent aspect of the drought system. Another interesting aspect of the drought, and this is actually illustrated by the relation of the soil moisture during the drought to lightning. Uh, this is looking at uh, just one summer. We've seen it every other summer. This is a measure of dryness, including Lethbridge. It was very dry soil. Around Winnipeg, it was very wet at the same time. In the middle, it was sort of in between. And the blue dots simply indicate where you had a lightning stroke uh, during that particular month. And the point is, over the dry region here, there were very few lightning strokes. There were very little, little amount of thunderstorms, whereas the blue, you can see there's a gigantic number of thunderstorms. And interestingly, over the wet area, there weren't as many deep clouds. There were just a lot of smaller ones. It's interesting. So the deepest clouds producing the most thunderstorms are over the region which had an intermediate amount of water vapor. And this is a good manifestation of another really important issue, which is somewhat shown by this cartoon here, about a very important feedback mechanism. So basically, if on, for some fortuitous circumstances, maybe it's even snow distribution in the winter, you may have a region which tends to be slightly less moisture than normal. Well, uh, you'll actually have little less evaporation from that region. You therefore have less water vapor to produce clouds. And so it probably won't produce any precipitation, but then you've lost the evaporation. So you start with a little bit of dryness. Because you can't produce any precipitation, it'll only get drier. So that perturbation will become an extreme dry. And the opposite happens too. For two to see you have a region a bit more wetter than normal, you have more evaporation, more chance of precipitation, landing back on, reduced even wetter. So you basically have this spiral going on. So Mother Nature likes to go to extremes. She starts with something small, and then she gets her feedback mechanisms acting to make it more so. And that example of lightning is a very good illustration of that. One other aspect I wanted to bring out is that, is that I call this sort of extreme squared is the fact that sometimes the drought was interspersed with catastrophic rain events. And uh, Lethbridge has a very important role here. This is the same diagram I showed you a few minutes ago. And now I just want to draw your attention to this region down in here. Some of these regions were basically the 90th percentile. This is the 90th percentile. This is like the wettest it's ever been in history. 
this is the driest, there's the wettest. That distance is only two or three hundred kilometers, basically. So here we are at the very same time, over the very same province, you have almost the lowest amount of precipitation and the wettest exactly the same time, interestingly enough. And this is a diagram, basically, the agricultural year from September 1st of one year to August 31st of next. In the next picture, I'm just going to show you from downtown Consul, Saskatchewan, actually. And basically, this picture was taken in April of 2002. And this is a region, as you see, is at least the 90th percentile. So in April of 2002, this is what it looked like. This region here, uh, by the end of the agricultural year, which came, uh, what is this, April, or May, June, July, on, it's got four more months to go. It was the 90th percentile over the recorded history. Uh, it's got a ways to go, right? It looks a little on the slim side here. So up until April of 2002, it was like this. It was actually like this in May of 2002. Along comes June, and basically one storm changed all of that. Uh, this one particular event in early June, from Manitoba Hydro's perspective, it produced more water for its hydro dams than anything in the last 60 years, for example, and it was obviously one of the biggest events uh, that Dave Phillips noticed. So it was a very slow-moving system that actually tracked uh, roughly along the U.S.-Canada border and basically almost single-handedly took that dry region and put it into a 90th percentile. So it's interesting, when I showed you the annual plots, it looks like we've had dry and wet for the whole year and everything is nice and the annual scale is not interesting, but you actually back it up. Well, basically that's about three days' work on one side and the drug was working year-round. So the scales are three days versus 300, so it's about a factor of 100 to 1, basically, in terms of timing. Now, it's interesting, we've written a paper on this particular article because our hypothesis was you can't have a dry region next to a wet region, they're not just both looking at each other saying, well, it's interesting, wet over here and dry. There's got to be some interaction going on. And there's this very interesting phenomenon. So this next plot is actually a cross-section along that line. It's a bit of a cartoon, and it's based on an awful lot of analysis. Uh, so I'll just show you what that means. And this is the cartoon of that. I know we uh, have to have Stephanie approve our cartoons. So this is looking to the north, and that's looking to the south, and this is up. Okay, so just going back here. So this is uh, this side to that side. It's looking up. So we're sort of looking at that cross-section. We're in Lethbridge, and we're looking towards Manitoba. Okay, so your Lethbridge, you're looking towards Manitoba. And so basically, without going into details, the moisture from this was actually coming ultimately from the Gulf of Mexico and was producing precipitation. There was a huge overhang. Virga was at least 200 kilometers across of Virga, which actually uh, got as far as Calgary to the north, even though Calgary didn't get any rain from this. Huge amount of clouds over top producing Virga. That's interesting. When you produce Virga, that means you're actually taking your clouds and your rain and you're evaporating it, right? There's a change of phase. You're going from liquid to vapor. You're going from a low-energy state to a high-energy state. You need energy to do that, and you take that out of the air. You cool the air. When you go swimming, you get out of the lake on a hot day, you feel cold. That's because the water is evaporating from your skin. The same thing is happening here in a mammoth scale. We're producing on the north side huge amounts of cooling here because of that process. And as we said before, cold air sinks. So basically, that started a huge descent of the air which brought actually more moisture in 
from the Gulf of Mexico. And you may not be able to follow this, but the other thing which happened, because we produce such a huge amount of cold air, cold air is dense air, it's heavy air, and the surface pressure below there actually increased as well. So we actually had the increasing of pressure. So that actually meant that to the north of the U.S. border we had higher pressure. To the south we've actually had a decrease in pressure because that rising air condensed produced heat. And that means that the temperature, the pressure gradient decreased or increased. And that actually brought more moisture from Manitoba to Alberta. And that air ascends up the foothills and producing much more precipitation than the foothills would have otherwise done. And that actually contributed to why the storm was so slow moving across the country. Slow, it was really slowed down because it had extra air coming in from Manitoba, which ultimately drove from Mexico, upslope, producing lots of precipitation, slowing it down and allowing all of that to produce more precipitation. So it's, a, to me, a very important uh, aspect about the fact you just can't have one extreme of dry next to an extreme of wet. They interact. In this case, I would argue the interact in a way to produce more precipitation, interestingly, than would have happened otherwise. Now, one thing that we just never really done as well as we should have was actually to see, as we learn more about this one event, how that may compare with other events. And this is just an example. Uh, this is, for example, from Barry Bonzel, who does a lot of work in industry. These are some of the, the worst years that he has in his record for the prairies in terms of an indice. Again, the, the redder it is, the drier it is in here. So these are some of the worst years. So we talked about the dirty 30s, for example. Well, here's a very dry year. But look at, here's a region right in here, right in the middle, which is almost normal. And look at the scales up here. They're only a couple of hundred kilometers. 1919, you got a wedge here, wedge, narrow. I mean, I don't know yet, and I'm only throwing this out of speculation. I keep thinking that there were storms actually occurring in here as well. Give these incredibly tight gradients here. That's only a couple of hundred kilometers. And also, if you're thinking of doing climate modeling, well, what's the scale of a climate model now? Well, a couple hundred kilometers. Well, a couple hundred kilometers in there, you can't resolve these things. So when you talk about drought in the prairies, yes, there's drought in the prairies, but there's a lot of variation in severity. And the scales are such that you really need to have fine-scale resolution. Now, there's a recent, much more catastrophic illustration of the interactions of dry and wet. It's basically called Russia and Pakistan. Okay, this is just a couple of months ago. If you look at the precipitation records, uh, this is India, this is Pakistan there. It's, at all, it's just right off the charts, this historical records. Uh, sitting over Moscow, it broke all-time high-pressure systems, unbelievable forest fires and things like that. And they were occurring on the same time. You notice that. They were interacting. They had to be the same time. Because for Pakistan, you have this huge convergence of moisture from here and from here coming in to produce that. If you do the trailing of where that, those circulations came from, they came from this catastrophic high-pressure system. So these, again, you can't understand the Pakistani floods without understanding, for example, that high-pressure over Russia. And there's actually, at the upcoming AGU, there's a whole symposium believe in these, this phenomena. And what it's really getting at is the fact that you really, very often these things come in dipoles. Even without any looking at any data, I always say that the, the oceans are evaporating roughly the same amount each year. So coming to North America, rather than Peter and Paul getting the same amount, well, one year they'll say, well, Peter, you have it all. That means Paul doesn't get any. 
So, so there's big, there's big summations you have to realize. But very often you have to understand these as a dipole, and this is a very good example of that, as well. Wet and dry, you have to understand them both together. So, one of the things I've been sort of moving towards saying here is that I actually think there's different types of meteorological drought. We have different types of drought now. We have meteorological drought, hydrologic drought, hydroelectric drought, economic drought. And what I'm really saying that there may be other types of meteorological drought, but that's really all I've been talking about here. So we can have a drought, for example, of no precipitation whatsoever. Obviously this happens, of course it does. But on the other hand, we may have a drought such as saw in Edmonton, it broke all-time records. It had precipitation, but it just weren't large events. Okay. So this first example, maybe no, that's your consistent high all the time. On the other hand, we may have a drought with all sorts of vertigo. It doesn't get anything at the ground. But we see on occasions such as June of 2002, it, it may be a drought which is actually prone under the right circumstances to produce a catastrophic rain event. And furthermore, if it does rain, it can either be a soaker or just an avalanche of precipitation. And obviously, lots of droughts are hot. This one we saw had elements which were actually quite cold. And right now, by the way, we're doing a follow-up study to see how often this happened. And we see even in the dirty 30s, there were significant periods where the temperatures were far below normal during the dirty 30s as well. So we're actually doing that now that we've understood this. And sometimes some droughts can be windy, especially I think if the large-scale circulation is changing as ours did. Because that means there's lots of pressure variation, so it can be windy. But of course it can be calm droughts too. And if it's windy, that means it can be dusty. But of course, if it's dusty, that means that you have to understand the role of dust on the drought as well. But if it's calm, then it's clear. You don't have to worry about it. And obviously, it can be cloud-free, or as we see, it can be cloudy. So maybe you have to realize that drought, you have to think about drought having different flavors, if you wished, as well. And of course, in a particular drought, you can actually go between types. And maybe there's some magic way it goes between them that one type actually leads to the other. I don't know. Of course, most people are interested in what has actually has happened and what will happen. And of course, there's been many studies of that being done, whereas most of my talk is actually, well, given the drugs, what's actually going on inside of it. But of course, others have a different perspective. And here's an example you've probably seen before of trends of dryness. And basically, again, whenever it's on this side, that means over this particular time period, that means you have a tendency for that region to be dry. And if it's on this side, it tends to be wet. And of course, people have argued that uh, our particular area in general tends to be on a drying trend. But you have to be very careful about looking at what years you're looking at here. Of course, the big question is what's going to happen in the future. Uh, if we do have, as we are having, a huge increase in carbon dioxide and other gases, one would anticipate temperatures will increase in general. And that means from the hydrologic cycle, the oceans are warmer, therefore they should be easier to evaporate. The land is warmer, that means they should be easier to evaporate. On the other hand, that means you should have more water vapor. More water vapor should, in general, mean you've got more chance of precipitation coming down. So basically what he's saying, you're suggesting you're increasing the hydrologic cycle. You're increasing the rate at which you're doing this and doing that. So it's one thing to talk about it on the ocean, but on the land, that means you've got an interesting problem, then, don't you? You have an increase in evaporation, you have an increase in precipitation. So who's going to win? 
Okay, so basically, whether we have dry or wet depends on the outcome of that. And of course, you can't do that at the back of an envelope. You need your large GCMs, and you've seen this uh, probably at nauseum, these kinds of plots, uh, looking at what the trends of precipitation may be like in the future from the last IPCC and many of the last model runs. I'm sure it will change. Basically, we're predicting relatively little change in precipitation for much of Canada as well. But of course, if you argue that that's associated with an increase in temperature, if you have the same amount of precipitation, if you have, if you have more temperature, warmer temperatures, which means more evaporation, you should actually end up with a drying trend. Okay? If it's warmer, you'll evaporate more, so it's a drug. And in fact, a study came out uh, just about two weeks ago, uh, because uh, I told them I was giving this talk, and they quickly did this calculation. That's not true. So this is a paper just came out uh, just a couple of weeks ago, basically just asking that question. They're taking that last diagram and simply asking, well, what does that mean in terms of precipitation in the future coupled with temperature? What does that mean for drying? And again, it's the very same scale. Whenever it's over here, it's getting drier. Whenever it's over here, it's getting wetter. And this is looking sometime in the future compared to approximately today. And so this is, again, based on the last IPCC. And here we are somewhere in here. Basically, it looks like we're in a red zone, which tends to suggest that we're in for a drying period. Now, the thing is, I know uh, Dr. Dye. He works at NCAR. And the thing is, he did put in this caveat, which is a very important caveat. He said, basically, I just took the data as presented to me. But he said, climate models remain inconsistent capturing precipitation changes and other factors. Climate models probably do about the poorest on precipitation, right? So this is based on what his projections are. But even he says, there's a, you know, that's what it is. But take this realize, take it with a grain of salt, because the models are not that good with precipitation. I think that's a very important message. And of course, this is the message. Again, I seem to find Globe and Mail articles. This is from a cartoon a few years ago in the Globe and Mail. Basically, the Meteorological Data Institute of Western Canada. Not quite sure where that is. But of course, people have been projecting that we will be drier based on those projections, basically. And people are giving talks on looming water shortage crisis and things like that. But basically, of course, we find ourselves, on, at least on occasion, into exactly the opposite situation, is what it's really trying to show you. And for example, maybe this year as well. So it's all saying the same thing. It's a very complex, very, very complex issue. And you can understand how difficult it is to understand precipitation formation. So for me, from my humble perspective, if somebody's interested in precipitation, when I look at the projections, I say, well, you know, there's really a lot of work, but boy, there's a few things they must have to have. Uh, for me, this access to water moisture sources is an absolute critical one. If you can understand droughts and flooding over the prairies, you better be darn good about making sure we can understand and simulate how moisture is tapped from the Pacific Ocean and Gulf of Mexico. And that requires some very high-resolution modeling activity. These surface feedback mechanisms, for example, as we saw in the lightning as one example, that's, that's doing a huge redistribution of moisture across the prairies. Dry regions are getting drier vice versa. You've got to have that captured in your model. And if this issue about that June 2002 storm has merit, under some situations such as that, you have to understand how the drought is interacting with the storm on the storm scale. 
because the signature of that one storm, you could see it on the vegetation for months and months and months afterwards, for example. If you, if you don't simulate that, which our regional climate model did not, and our GCM certainly did not, it wasn't in the models that meant it was dry over that region as opposed to wet. And therefore, you know, the next month, it's, one is dry, one is wet. So it's, simulating drought is very difficult because when you get precip in the ground, it wets the ground, then you can have clouds to sort of get a feedback. But if you don't get it, then you won't. It's a very, very difficult problem. And even this roll of dust is not in the models whatsoever. Okay, under some situations, this is going to be a huge issue. And these are just a few of many. And of course, you have this problem about the model resolution of the technology as such that all of these things can't be captured. So what is the climate forecast? Well, I don't think I'm going to say anything different that you don't already know yourself. I'm just really concerned. You know, it's a warmer climate in general. I think we're having an accelerated water cycle, and that would tend to move you more towards extremes than what we have now. But I would be the first to say there's lots of uncertainty, and that's exactly what that article mentioned in October 2010, saying the same thing, that, you know, be careful, this is what it says, but we're well aware we have to do a lot better. So just in summary, I just hope you enjoy the presentation as much as the cookies, maybe not. So basically, first of all, I just, I, to me, it's extremes, again, are not just along for the ride. You don't understand the climate, no, by the way, we're going to understand drought. Well, to me, you can't understand the climate without understanding those. They're an inherent aspect of it. And furthermore, at least some droughts are very multifaceted. Okay, you have different elements. Not all droughts are hot droughts. Some of them are cold. Okay, there's a whole variety of that. So there's different ways of producing no precipitation. Okay, just understanding that. And furthermore, we see that heavy precipitation sometimes occurs simultaneously. And at least under some situations, the two interact very significantly to produce extreme squared, I would call it. And we have a very interesting future for us, uh, certainly extremes with many consequences, but lots of uncertainty. And by the way, this is how that drought ended in southern Manitoba in June 2005. It ended very similarly here as well in a catastrophic event. So that was all I wanted to say, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the presentation. Thank you.